Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Calling Tau City, turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders network. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm moving, waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 661. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. What a show today. We have, I'll tell you what's coming up then, straight off. We have The Undone at Tishihara's by Joaquin Hindemans. Story first appeared in Storyteller Magazine 2017. Then we have our very own Amy H. Sturgis with her looking back at genre history. That's all coming today's show. I do hope you'll stick around and enjoy it. First off though, I finished my, I finished up my house decorating skills and along with the audio book, the Andy We Are One, which was called Project Hail Mary, and to be honest, I loved it. First off, the first off the the belt, the audio because I listened on audio. The audio production has probably been the best one I have heard. Period. Honestly, no getting away from it. I mean, it was a it's a complicated little book for audio. If you if that's what it's not a kind of complicated. Well, I guess you know if you were kind of. For me, it was. I loved it. You know what I mean? It wasn't like a complicated read. There's a lot of kind of working out maths equations, and you know, you know, I kind of tear at me stride. But for an audio production, it was. Do you know what I mean? There was a kind of a language to get over, a language barrier. But it, man, what a production that was! And I've listened. Remember that? I, what, what's it called? To, to sleep in a, a, a sea of stars. I think it's called Christopher. Paulini, <laughs> probably butchered that all over the shop, and that was like a huge monster size book, you know. And I thought that audio, you know, the narrator was just captured that protagonist perfectly. But there was still a couple of fluffs in it, and you know, it, it does pull you out. You know, what I mean, hey, don't get us wrong. It's like you know, what I mean, hands up. You know, we've had more fluffs on this show than anyone. But there was not one fluff in that Andy Weir one. I think it's something like 16 hours long. And just, like I say, a complicated little niggly little thing to put together as an audio production. But just excellent. And like I say, I mean, I was kind of painting a a room, you know, so I had like two days fast gloss painter. (laughs) Just one coat. And you know what I mean? It was just... 
I loved it. And then I kind of had about four hours left and it just flew over and it was just total escapism, to be honest. I love the book. I'm not going to, no spoilers or anything like that. If you listen to it, if you're into audio and you listen, which I hope you are, you can get it, you know what I mean, on the Audible. It's just a fantastic, fantastic read, to be honest. It's just like I say, I think his last one, his Artemis, Andy Weir's Artemis, just didn't seem to kind of sit right with us. Now, this is like a, a little, maybe, I, I don't, honestly don't know, but you know, The Martian and this book are very similar in, you know, problem solving, should we say. Now, I like that as a, I'm getting into that as a little subgenre. So, and in science fiction, do you know what I mean? And it's it's kind of science fiction, problem-solving, near future, which I like. You know what I mean? It's, I'm getting it down to kind of a specific, you know what I mean? There's probably only two writers going to do that. But I like that. I like this kind of problem-solving because it, it works it out along with you, if you know what I mean. The, the more you kind of read, listen to it, you know what I mean? You you kind of get to what hit the, the the problem is, and I like that. I, I really like that. And like I say, I've I loved, I loved the Martian. Thought that was fantastic. I actually had him on the the show. If you go back into the records with a couple of interviews, I'm sure with him. But this one is kind of hit hit the nail, hit the hit the ground running. And I love that one. And like I say, you cannot fault at all that audio production. Just a great narrator who kind of. Pearson and everything's brilliant. Anyway, let us get into today's show. It is the Undone at Tashihara's by Joaquin Hindemans. And like I say, this story first appeared in Storyteller magazine in July 2017. Joaquin writes, draws and paints nearly every waking hour. Originally from the Netherlands, he has been all over the world, boring people by spouting random trivia. His work has been featured in a number of anthologies and publications, such as Mad Scientist Journal, Ahoy Comics, Metamorphosis and the Gallery of Curiosities. And his, his short story, All Through the House, was adapted for the next Netflix animated anthology, Love, Death and Robots. And I've just finished that series as well. And now that stands out. It's like a little twist on the, on, the, on the Santa Claus story, you know, like leaving the presents down, down, you know, for the kids waking up and thinking they can hear Santa Claus. Yes, well, that's you know, when they get picked for that, Joaquin Farrell, man, well, well done, sir. Now, this story is narrated by Will Staggle. Will Staggle lives in Tuscan, Arizona with his wife, Susan, and Dora Violet. He is a cre- creative professional by day and the lead singer and guitarist of a post-punk band called Liquid Centers by Night. And he's always up for a pint and a corner pub. So, the Starship Sofa is very proud to present... The Udon Atashiharas by Joaquin Hindermans Read to you by Will Stegel Tashiharas was known throughout the district as the best place for udon. There was no finer udon restaurant for miles. Ask anyone. You'd need to go all the way up to Narita to find a small stand owned by old man Miyaki to find a better bowl of beef udon. Sure, there's a decent ramen place two shops down and a somen restaurant near the metro station that isn't too shabby. But if you wanted udon, Tashihara's was the place to be. Their buckwheat noodles were thick and their broth was chock full of the richest flavors. They used the highest quality ingredients and served your meal with a smile. Tashihara's saved the neighborhood with their noodles. It fed them and gave them a place to wait out the heavy rain. Tashihara's quite literally kept them alive. Their little restaurant protected them by keeping him happy and fed. Shinji Yutaro worked as a cook at Tashihara for nearly 10 years. He'd started out as a busboy before washing the dishes and mopping the floors. He dreamed of being a chef. For months, he pleaded with Mr. Kamomura, the manager and owner, to give him a chance. Kamomura made it clear he was not going to let some kid who carried out the trash prepare food for his customers. This went on for nearly a year. Shinji would ask and ask and then ask some more. And every time Kamomura gave him the same answer once in the form of a well-thrown hatchet, barely missing Shinji's head. It was clear, as long as Kamamura owned this restaurant, Shinji wouldn't set one foot behind the stove. Then, it happened. The regular chef, Mr. Sato, was arrested for public drunkenness in Rapanji. With no one else to turn to on such short notice, 
The manager let Shinji take a shot in the kitchen. Some of the regulars didn't enjoy his cooking, preferring the previous chef's methods. With the regulars gone, the place emptied out. And an empty restaurant is like a bowl of untouched sweets. Probably not worth a try. The manager was ready to send Shinji back to his dishwashing duties, but unbeknownst to them, the most important customer came into their little restaurant. He loved Shinji's beef udon and declared it the best he had ever had, demanding it the next time he dropped by. After that, Shinji Utaro could do no wrong. Through word of mouth, Tashihara became known for making the best udon in all of Shinjuku. Before long, Shinji took over the restaurant. He made his wife Yuki acting manager and hostess, as Tashihara's without Shinji making udon became unthinkable. Business was good, even with the pressure of pleasing their Saturday night regular. It was Saturday night. Once again, Shinji was working hard on his signature udon. The rest of the staff was on prep duty, but their foremost task was to stay out of Chef Yutaro's way while he was cooking. With blinding speed, he sliced the beef into thin strips as the noodles were coming to a boil. There was an order for udon with shrimp tempura and norutamaki, but it would have to wait. It was almost 8 o'clock, and his most important customer would come to dine, expecting his favorite dish to be ready. A dish with twice the amount of noodles, twice the amount of beef, and just the right amount of garnish. Chinji could hear a few drunk men singing loudly out front, but knew when their weekly guests showed, the place would become dead quiet and empty out in no time. Yotura-san, two more orders of the pork with egg, and two of the tashi beef, and table three wants their tempura in the ruto bowl. Haru the waitress barked from the other side of the window. On the way, Shinji shouted back. Within minutes, he prepared the five bowls, setting them out for service. When Haru came to retrieve them, she threw Shinji the wide-eyed, nervous look that young people often have. A look that either said, Please come out and greet our honored guest, or, Help, we are going to die an agonizing death. Considering who just entered Tashihara's, it could go either way. He's here? Shinji asked. Haru gave a slight nod. She was biting her lower lip. Shinji knew his presence was required in the dining area. Their guest needed to be greeted in person, or he would suffer the painful consequences. Shinji quickly left the kitchen, leaving his assistant Hideo to watch his station. Everyone ready? he asked, entering the dining area, approaching his wife and Haru. Yes, they said collectively. The door opened with a happy little chime. The welcoming committee bowed. Irashimase! they cried in unison, greeting their most honored guest as warmly as they could. A hideous seven-foot creature, known as Lord Kervak, struggled to enter the small establishment. He gripped a bright blue cooler tightly in one of his three-fingered hands. He grunted at the warm welcome, acknowledging it without being too sincere. Lord Kervak wouldn't want to give them the honor of a true warrior's greeting. The enormous creature, which Yuki once described as looking like a cross between a lizard, a horseshoe crab, a potato bug, and a well-fed yakuza, scanned the dining area with his multiple yellow eyes, inhaling deeply. Shinji knew he was taking in the delicious smells that danced in the air. The odors pleased him far more than the politeness of the welcoming committee ever could. The creature stepped towards the chef, causing an orchestra of noise as his jagged tail scraped over the floor. His six eyes darted side to side, inspecting the surroundings. Most of the patrons pretended to ignore the beast, knowing better than to stare directly at a colonist. They did not take kindly to being watched, especially by their inferiors. Again, the risk of death or dismemberment was a possible consequence. Lord Karavec moved closer to Shinji, placing one of his six hands on the chef's shoulder and squeezing it. He probably meant to be gentle, but Shinji could already feel the colonist's razor-sharp talons poking through his shirt. Shinji, you louse, you speck of dirt, you complete waste of space. You're but a blight on my otherwise acceptable view. Always a pleasure, said the creature, patting Shinji's cheek with the smallest of his arms. The usual, Lord Kavak? Shinji asked. As always, Kavak grunted, gnashing his teeth and licking his lips in anticipation. Thick globs of spittle ran down his chin, dripping onto the wooden floor. Shinji noticed Haru trying to hide her annoyance, knowing full well she'd have to mop it up. Kervak moved toward a booth. To his great displeasure, a middle-aged man with thinning hair was enjoying a bowl of shrimp and eggplant tempura. The man looked up when Lord Kervak's heavy shadow fell upon him, 
meeting the many furious eyes of the colonists known as the Eliminator. The creature snorted and growled deeply, the table trembling with each exhaled breath. The great warrior of the dying tundras of Roar made it clear this booth was reserved for Kervek the Eliminator. Without saying a word, the gentleman quickly vacated the booth, taking a seat at the bar. A moment later, Kervek squeezed himself between the bench and the table. Oh, Shinji, bring me a tall glass. I've brought my own beer tonight, Kervek grunted. Of course, Lord Kervek, Shinji said. While most patrons are asked not to bring their own beverages, Kervek was the exception. It wasn't as though Shinji needed to worry whether Kervek would order any food. Back in the kitchen, Shinji grabbed the special bowl which was reserved for the colonist. It was a large blue bowl with the kanji word for dog written on the side. When Kervek first showed up at Tashihara's, they did not have dishes large enough for portions befitting his stature. Hachiko, the light brown Akita, was forced to surrender his beloved food bowl to their new and most honored guest. Since that day, the blue bowl was only to be used by Kervek. Shinji poured the udon into it and added the beef, eggs, and seasoning, just as he had so many times before. With the blue bowl in one hand and a large beer glass in the other, Shinji rushed out and presented Kervek with his meal. It had become an unofficial tradition that the chef would serve the Eliminator his first meal of the evening. The creature grunted to show appreciation and produced a large bottle of Singha beer from the cooler. Kervek licked his lips. The udon looked absolutely divine, the smell filling the air. The buckwheat noodles began to soak in the broth, and the fried egg placed on top was practically calling to be eaten. Kervak paused, showing Shinji an annoyed look. Reluctantly, he placed his hands together and said, Itadakimashu. Shinji bowed slightly. He and Haru began to applaud their guest's excellent table manners. This only seemed to agitate the creature more. From the cooler, Kervak produced two chopsticks, specifically crafted for a being his size. Only then did he begin to slowly eat his meal. Shinji could see he was savoring each mouthful, watching the noodles rolling on his tongue. For Kervak, every meal was now a grand feast. For him, food was now a delight. Shinji retreated back to his kitchen. He had more udon to make. Kervak sat in silence, savoring his favorite meal in his own private little corner. Kervak buried his face deep into his bowl, lapping up the last few noodles and pieces of spring onion stuck to the bottom. Despite his growing skill with chopsticks, he had still difficulty with the final stray noodles. On his home world, there would be no problem with him simply grabbing them with his fingers, but this world had rules. There were protocols when it came to eating human food. Kervik did not care for these rules. They were time-consuming and beneath one of his status. But after being severely disciplined by his commanding officer for his actions at Kakizuka Sushi, he deemed it best to adhere to the human's protocols. Still, he did as he pleased, unconcerned with whether the natives thought him rude when he ate. He was a colonist. He'd be damned if he would let some twiggy human tell him what to do and how to do it. If they didn't like it, they could always challenge him. In some ways, he wished they would. They would pay dearly if they dared defy him. From the corner of his upper left eye, Kervek spotted a young man in a booth on the opposite side of the restaurant. He too had ordered beef udon, but he seemed to be taking his time with it. Instead of gorging himself, this young human was completely preoccupied with reading his book. Reading for pleasure was something the colonists never grasped, least of all Kervak. Normally he would pay no mind to the stupid hobbies the creatures enjoyed, but this human was letting his udon grow cold. It dulled the taste when it grew cold. The one thing Kervak hated was udon being left out and going to waste. Unacceptable! Kervak made his way towards the human. Look at this thing! Such a pathetic species. Skinny, spineless, weak. And despite all these flaws, they have one gift colonists could never master. And do they appreciate it? No! No, this fool reads. He reads and lets perfectly good udon grow cold. It was high time Lord Kervak gave him a talking to. Hey, Kervak growled, standing before the young human. What are you doing, you simpering maggot? The human looked up. He was shocked by the large beast standing next to his booth, stammering a bit. I'm, I'm having dinner. No, you are not, Kervak growled. You are spoiling dinner by letting it sit there and grow cold while you peer into your little book. The human stammered again. Uh, it was too hot. I, I was simply letting it cool. It is best when hot. You're letting the flavor deteriorate, Kervak growled deeply. And for what? So you can read? You filth! 
You're a complete waste, not even worthy to lick the dirt from my tail. Uh, 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 the man stammered, terrified. Is there a problem, Lord Kervek? Shinji asked, rushing to the table. This weakling is disrespecting you, your establishment, and your skills, Shinji. I was simply taking steps to re-educate him. Kervek grunted at his host. You do me a great honor, but I must insist you leave this matter to me, Shinji pleaded. If he has offended me, then it is my offense to deal with, isn't it? Please, Lord Kevak, take your seat. Your next bowl will be ready shortly. Kevak growled loudly, baring his numerous sharp teeth. He snapped at the young man, sending spittle and half-ingested udon noodles in his direction. The colonist relented, walking back to his booth, stomping his feet loudly in protest. Outrageous! Back when the colonists first arrived on this mud ball, I wouldn't have hesitated for a second to rip this feeble creature to shreds for such an offense. Nor would I have been denied my right as a warrior to make a public example of this maggot. But things are different now. Now Corvette was forced to act within the boundaries set by his superiors regarding proper conduct when among these lesser beings. How he loathed them. But they were needed more than any colonist could ever dare to admit. Without them, the great secret would be lost. Things would go back to the way they were. There would be no flavor in the food. That was an unacceptable notion, no matter how easy it would be to reduce these worms to ash. To be superior in every way, but still depend on them, was maddening. But Kervak had little time to stew in his anger. Haru walked into the dining hall with his next bowl of udon. His eyes widened with joy when he saw the chef had placed a pair of extra-large fried eggs on top of them. Ah, was there anything better in life than udon? Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. A quarter to one. She dreaded these nights. Kervak was finishing another bowl, his fifth. One more to go, and he'd call it a night and lumber back to the colonist barracks. The restaurant was empty, save for the seven-foot colonist. The hostess kept checking the clock frequently. Yuki couldn't wait for the creature to leave. She hoped he wasn't too drunk now that the beer had worked its way into his system. It was an ugly sight when a colonist gets drunk. From the kitchen came the joyful sounds of a shift winding down. The staff was joking with each other. The fires were out. The dishes were cleaned and the counters were wiped down. Haru walked into the dining area, cleaning off the booth tables and the bar. No doubt she was anxious to get home as well, rushing back and forth quickly. Usually, Kervak was far too concerned on his udon to even notice the girl. Until tonight. Yuki watched as Kervak, the undefeated, mauler of Crescendil Valley, and champion of Eater of Udon, spotted Haru. The girl was behind the bar, collecting the unused plates to bring back to the kitchen. He quickly flung the remains of his udon down his throat and held the empty bowl up in the air. Girl! Take my bowl away. I am finished with it. He bellowed in his unique version of Japanese. Yuki could tell Haru could barely make heads or tails of it, but his gesture said enough. She hurried over and placed his regular bowl on the stack of plates. 
My glass too, girl. My glass. Kervek grunted. Haru took that as well. She stepped off, failing to notice one of Kervek's smaller arms grabbing her ankle. She violently dropped to the floor, screaming as she hit face first. The plates and the glass shattered, only the blue bowl unbroken. Blood streamed from Haru's nose, her eyes watering. And Kervak, the decimator, slayer of twelve Kurin beasts, and now bully of teenage waitresses, let his laughter bellow out from the deepest parts of his gut. Haru! Yuki yelled, rushing to help her. The young girl buried her face into Yuki's shoulder, sobbing. Kervak found this all the more amusing, slapping one of his hands on his knee. He acted like it was the funniest thing he'd seen in ages. Yuki cringed the way Haru plopped down and squealed when her face hit the floor. But this thing thought it was hysterical. He was sitting smug, knowing they wouldn't do a damn thing to him. He knew they would never stand up to him. It infuriated her. It was over in a flash. Both the hostess and the colonists were shocked when it was over. Yuki didn't know what came over her, but by the time the blue bowl hit Karavik in the eye, it was too late to do anything about it. The colonists' hands shook in fury. You dare! Karavik bellowed out. He stood up quickly, uprooting the table from the ground before flinging it across the dining area. Fortunately, booth floor was now empty, or there would have been casualties. The colonists' outburst could be heard throughout the restaurant, if not the entire neighborhood. Shinji came rushing in from the kitchen. Like most people who walk in on an angry seven-foot monster, he instantly regretted it. He took one look at his wife, still comforting Haru in her arms, and he could guess what happened. It took all the strength and self-control to not laugh when he saw Kervak's enraged face, a lone udon noodle dangling from his spiked brow. My lord, what seems to be... Shinji began, doing his best to keep his tone calm. Kervak flung his tail around, breaking the seats in the booth. Your woman has assaulted me! Defiled my honor, in fact! She and the girl will be put to death! Whatever humor Shinji saw in the situation before was now gone. This was a serious threat. The colonists do not joke around when it comes to administering justice. They were doomed if they couldn't calm him down. But what could he do? Call Kervak's commander? That could take hours. Yuki and Haru did not have that kind of time. Haru began crying, his wife pulling the teenage girl behind her, trying to shield her. My lord, I'm sure that if we are calmly, we... Calm? You speak to me of calm? She dares raise her hand against a superior being, and you expect me to be calm? I could raise this shithole in the ground and stomp your bones to dust. I am Kervak. I will claim my retribution. Kervak motioned to the two women. They screamed as he reached out for them. His sharp claws were extended, poised to impale them. He recoiled at the last second when Shinji stepped between them and his prey. What folly is this? Out of my way, insect! You will not harm either of them, Lord Kavak. I have been insulted! They must die, and so will you if you do not move! No, you will not, Shinji snapped, his voice raised. Kervak was speechless. Did this bag of bones just say no to him? To Kervak the Unvanquished? My wife will apologize for insulting you, after which you will authorize a grant from the colony to repair my restaurant. Everyone was stunned, Shinji most of all, but he stood by his words. He was terrified he'd be sliced to ribbons by the colossus standing before him, but he didn't move. Shinji knew the rest of his staff were wondering if they could make a break for the rear exit before Kervak decided to kill them too. Kervak gnashed his teeth, blood pumped into his scales, turning them a bright hellish red. Then the creature did something none of them expected. He laughed, a deep, dark, throaty laugh, far more terrifying than the earlier roars and threats. As suddenly as it began, the laughter stopped. He hunched over, his six eyes staring into Shinji's too. You have sand, you dirty louse! Grit, balls, nerve, or whatever you call this insolence! And seeing how pathetic your kind is, it is all the more admirable. But I am of the Haktunavra, the burning warriors. We are born under the smoke and ash of our world of fire. We have slain every adversary who dared to oppose our might. We crushed your armies in less time than it takes to have a decent shit. We enslaved your kind and killed your weak while you could only watch. If you wanted, we could wipe you out in an instant. We conquered worlds when you were still shivering in caves and shitting yourselves when it rained. The colonists moved closer. His foul breath only marginally masked as the lingering smell of beef broth blew over Shinji's face. His many hands were clenched into fists. 
Shinji stared back into those hateful eyes, shining with several hues of yellow, beaming more hatred with every second. If he was going to make his stand against this creature, then he'd have to see it through. He took a deep breath and finally said what no human ever dared to say to a colonist, but no doubt secretly dreamed of saying a hundred times. Then when will you learn to cook like us? Or learn how to cook at all, without burning everything? Or boiling it too long? When will you no longer need us? The staff gasped. Yuki covered her mouth with her hand in shock. And Kervak? He stood there slack-jawed, unable to reply. He had to be shocked that anyone, least of all a human, would speak to him like that. Kervak raised his head, grunting and banging his chest. Bah! You think that making food with taste makes you special? And I'm using distraction, if even that. Nothing else you have done has been of any significance. I've seen your art. I've fought your armies. We don't need your culinary skills as much as you think, you miserable speck of gunk. If that is true, then kill me. You can clearly live without my udon, since it's just a distraction. I just might. Your skills are meaningless. Then do it. Kill me, Shinji said as calmly as possible. Kerek raised his clawed hand. Shinji couldn't help but imagine being reduced to a pile of shredded meat and bones. When Kervik was done with him, he would certainly burn the restaurant to the ground, possibly the entire district. After that, he'd simply find a new place to eat, one that was comparable to Tashihara's. But even if he did, what would make the next chef resist, or the one after that? Shinji knew the colonists didn't have foods with flavors on the old world. No spices or herbs or those little crystals that made food so sweet. They ate their enemies, raw, unseasoned, bland. Shinji could tell Kervik was troubled by something. What made killing so difficult now? He is Kervak, the unbroken, the powerful, the destroyer, and to make his own great shame, the hopeless addict of beef udon. Bah! Kervak spat out, along with a half-digested noodle. This is your argument? We need more than you need us? You're ludicrous, and to think I nearly respected you. For a moment, Kervak stumbled around grunting. He felt trapped, snared in a trap of his own making. There are other Udon places, others to take your place, he retorted. Yes, there are, Shinji said, and I'm certain their Udon will be just like mine, exactly even. Kervak felt like his eyes were going to burst out of his head with rage. This miserable cook was toying with him. Shinji was doing the human thing, where they say one thing but mean another. Kervak hated that more than anything else these fleshy globs did or said. Sarkazama, or whatever they called it. And now this insignificant glob was using it on him? As angry as he was, he knew there was nothing he could do. These humans had done the unthinkable. They beat him. They beat him! No matter how hard he tried to convince himself otherwise, he knew he couldn't live without the Udon. In a final expression of his rage, Kervik stomped his foot on the ground, driving it through the hardwood floor. He roared for nearly a minute straight, covering Shinji in even more spittle and phlegm, and he picked up his blue cooler and stomped toward the door. He was nearly out the door when Shinji spoke. Will we see you again next Saturday? Three bloodshot eyes darted back at him, as Kervik slightly tilted his head toward him. I will have my usual, yes. Have it ready when I arrive. Of course, Shinji said. But I'm afraid I must ask you to reimburse the damage to my restaurant, Lord Kervak. Kervak said nothing. He stood there unfazed, staring coldly at the cook that dared stand up to him. In a disinterested tone, Kervak said, Bill it to my representative. He'll cover it. Have this pigsty fixed before my next visit. Certainly. Thank you for your visit. Please come again, Shinji said with a bow. The cook's eyes darted to his wife, still sitting on the floor cradling Haru. She realized what was expected of her, rising from the floor and pulling Haru up with her. They both bowed and asked their most honored guest to come again. The rest of the staff followed the example. Kervik slumped through the door, slamming it behind him, cracking the glass. Yuki suddenly slapped her husband. Are you out of your mind? Me? You're the one who threw food in his face, Shinji said, cracking a smile. He could have killed us! But he didn't, and that's the important thing. Shinji turned to the staff. I'm sorry to ask this of you all so late in the night. Could you help me clear some of this debris before you go home? Not one person in that hall questioned it. They all stayed to help. Even Haru was eager to help, but Mr. Yutaro took her aside to dress her bleeding nose. The rest began picking up pieces of broken plates, fallen cutlery, 
wood splinters and shards of glass. Chef, how did you know the colonist wouldn't kill you? asked Garo, his assistant. I didn't, Shinji chuckled. I just put all my faith into my udon cooking skills and hoped it would be enough to persuade him not to murder me. But that was open rebellion. He'll never forgive you. You know how the colonists are. They might call it rebellion, but I call it simple economics. Supply and demand. His demand was so great he could no longer tamper with the supply, or in this case, the supplier. He'll try and have his revenge, though, Goro said. You'd best be careful, boss. Let's just focus on making the best udon in the district for now. We'll worry about that later. In the dark of the night, illuminated by the neon colors that decorated nearly every structure of this fabulous city, walked a lone figure. It was Kervak, the colonist, the warrior, the defeated. Since leaving Tashihara's, he'd been mulling over how to get back at that worm Shinji. What was to be a night of pleasure had turned into one of outrage and dishonor. He was of the purple rank. Purple! And that waste of air and space humiliated him. There was only one thing on Kervak's mind, and that was revenge. He'd crush every bone in his hands and make him suffer. Of course, then there'd be no udon noodles. Perhaps burn Shinji's home with him and his family in it. Again, there'd be no udon noodles. Smash his property? No noodles. Eat his pet canine? No noodles. Every plan he thought of ended up with the same result. No noodles. He was locked in an endless loop. Revenge would cost him his udon, and it would seem udon had cost him his revenge. It was when he neared the colony barracks when another colonist passed him eating 12 different flavors of gari-gari-kun popsicles that had hit him. A terrible realization. He was just the first. The human insects would find something in each and every one of the colonists they held dear. The humans would withhold it. The tables would be turned. The unconditional and unchallenged rule of the colonists would end. Their power snatched away like the swipe of a child's toy. I must warn them, warn the commanders and the district delegates. Prevent this rebellion and crush it in its infancy. He stood up, his vigor renewed, ready to go to war with these maggots. He could rally the troops and repeat the devastation they unleashed on these insects once before. They would show these humans their place and kill any upstarts. The cries of pain and suffering would be heard throughout as they slaughtered the maggots. And then there'd be no udon. Once more he slumped over. With a heavy heart, he entered the barracks. It was going to be a long week. Life on this world was suddenly a little less enjoyable now. But, at least, there would always be a blue bowl filled with beef udon, topped with a fried egg, waiting every Saturday. And there you go, Joaquin. Thank you so much. Whoa, man. Lovely to have you on the show. That's lovely. Thank you indeed. Please come back. Come back indeed. And Will, it's always a pleasure, lad. Thank you so much. Great little narration there. Up there with the, <laughs> with the Project Hail Mary of Andy Weas. That was really good. Thank you, Will. It's a pleasure. So we have our very own Amy H. Sturgis. Ames. Hello, my friends. It's time for another look back into genre history. And today I'd like to talk a bit about the inspiration slash foundations for the original Star Trek. As I believe I've already mentioned, this summer I am teaching a graduate course exploring Star Trek. And so that's been on my mind quite a lot. And one of the things that struck me as I was putting together my thoughts on the original series of Star Trek, the original creation of Star Trek was how the creator, Gene Roddenberry, pitched the show and what that tells us about the inspirations for Star Trek and also the foundations on which those stories were built. And he gave two different stories, two different pitches, essentially, that I want to mine just a bit and talk a bit about. The first was the depiction of Star Trek as Wagon Train to the Stars. Now, many of you are aware, Wagon Train was a U.S. Western television series that aired on the NBC network from 1957 to 1962, and then it jumped to ABC for 1962 to 1965. And the premise of the show was that this wagon train of settlers, 
pioneers, however you would like to phrase that, moved west, starting in St. Joseph, Missouri, or Missouri, as we used to say in Oklahoma, across the Midwestern Plains and the mountains, the Rocky Mountains, ultimately to California, to Sacramento. And the series regulars were the ones who conducted this train, who helped the settlers go from the Midwest to the Far West. And the idea was that each episode would follow guest characters and their struggles and their obstacles and their characters themselves. So the episodes would have titles like The Echo Pass Story or The Willie Moran Story. And each episode kind of had this standalone story about the guest star or guest stars of that episode. But within the larger framework of the trials and tribulations of the series regulars, the ones who were in charge of the wagon train, there were a lot of pretty high visibility stars at the time who ended up being guest stars on the show, like Betty Davis and Ronald Reagan and Lee Marvin, people like that. It was such a notable and successful show that the best-known director of Westerns, John Ford, came on board to direct one segment in 1960. John Ford was known for being the director, right? His Westerns would go on to sort of define what Western films were, as well as influence other filmmakers. You can sort of draw a line from, for example, John Ford's Westerns to Akira Kurosawa's samurai films to ultimately Sergio Leone's Westerns from Italy. One of the films, in fact, that John Ford was best known for is The Searchers from 1956, and that starred John Wayne and Jeffrey Hunter. And I mentioned that just because Jeffrey Hunter would go on to be the first star to depict a captain of the USS Enterprise, namely Captain Christopher Pike in the very first pilot for Star Trek. That was the cage, and the cage would later, because it was unaired, be repurposed as the heart and soul of the only two-part episode in Star Trek, the original series, The Menagerie. Okay, so one of the ways that Gene Roddenberry, the creator of Star Trek, pitched the show was as Wagon Train to the Stars. The other way that Roddenberry pitched the show was as Horatio Hornblower in Space. Horatio Hornblower is a fictional officer in the Royal Navy during the Napoleonic Wars. He was the lead character in a series of novels and stories by C.S. Forster, starting in 1937. And he would go on to be the subject of films, radio series, television programs. There's even a biography of this fictional character. He's sort of the archetypal seafaring adventure novel character, if you will. And speaking of nice little connections here to start. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Trek later, Captain Horatio Hornblower also known as Captain Horatio Hornblower R.N. 
in the UK, RN standing for Royal Navy, was a 1951 British-American naval swashbuckling war film. It's sort of the definitive first really popular, well-known Horatio Hornblower adaptation. It was based on three of Forrester's Horatio Hornblower novels, The Happy Return, A Ship of the Line, and Flying Colors. This film came out in 1951 and starred Gregory Peck as Horatio Hornblower. And to this day, Gregory Peck is still the first person some of us think of when we think of Horatio Hornblower. And it isn't worth pointing out that the newest incarnation of Mr. Spock in Star Trek, as seen in the current series Star Trek Discovery, and as will be seen in the upcoming series Star Trek Strange New Worlds, is portrayed by Ethan Peck, Gregory Peck's grandson. Okay, so what do we do with this idea that there are these dual stories or dual backgrounds for Star Trek? Wagon Train to the Stars and Horatio Hornblower in Space. At first blush, these two pillars of story, if you will, or two inspirations, have some things in contrast with each other. The Wagon Train idea is specifically about the North American frontier in terms of the Western mythos, or the kind of mythic storytelling that comes up around the Western, the frontier, quote-unquote, is about freedom. It's about open space. It's about the opportunity to reinvent yourself and to start from scratch and create a brand new life. The flip side of that is a kind of manifest destiny idea or U.S. exceptionalism idea that this place is special and that the people who are moving to the West, and I mean here white people, somehow have this natural claim to the space, that they are entitled to it because it is a part of a grand design. It is their destiny. And so there are some deeply problematic aspects of that, as you can Imagine with this kind of colonialist thinking, the kind of framework of taming the frontier, conquering the frontier, and of course in the midst of that also claiming as a birthright because of right whiteness or what have you, the land that actually belonged to other people. But that's a different kind of mythos than the mythos around the British Age of Sail story, which is connected in part to a notion of empire. It's not about freedom, it's about duty. It's not about the open space of the West, it's about the small found family of the ship. And rather than having the flip side of the Western be manifest destiny or U.S. exceptionalism, the flip side of the open seas in the Royal Navy is about imperialism in a way. These people aren't on the ocean to go have fun and make friends. They're there as part of the project of making the world England. And so that implies there's a power differential, right? This implies that because Britannia rules the waves, they will decide what happens wherever they land, and they will be sort of in charge. If you're a Star Trek fan, I think you can see here that both the manifest destiny, we go forward and conquer because this is our birthright kind of mentality, and also the empire, the imposition mentality, they don't sit very well with the project of the Federation, which is supposed to be exploration and contact and knowledge. But we can also see why, then, the idea of the prime directive, this non-interference principle, saying you cannot exert power over cultures or planets that have less technology. You can't go in and help people make decisions that you want made for your own outcomes when it's their planet and their culture, and you have to respect other peoples and other species and other worlds. That prime directive, that non-interference principle, which to be fair was used sometimes as a suggestion rather than a rule, <laughs> let's be honest, in Star Trek, but still you can see how that sort of is a pushback against the 
darker sides or more problematic sides of both of these inspirations or storytelling foundations. But there are other ways where the wagon train to the stars and Horatio Hornblower in space ideas are pretty much in sync. Obviously, the idea of adventure, the idea of exploration, the idea of seeing things that you haven't seen before and meeting peoples you haven't met before, those are all connected. But there's also a kind of freedom, a kind of autonomy in both of these storytelling cycles for the leader and the leader's support group or network, or to put it another way, the captain and the senior officers. Whether you are leading a wagon train in the middle of the American West or you're out at sea, you don't get to go contact anyone else and get feedback from your superiors or what have you. At any given moment, you have to act as pretty much an independent decision maker or decision makers when you add the the senior officers together. You have to decide at the moment, thinking on your feet, and respond to whatever comes up. And then later, perhaps, touch base with the higher-ups. None of the captains, for example, in Star Trek have the leisure of waiting for a committee of admirals to get together and debate something for several days and then come up with a resolution when in the heat of a crisis dealing with an emergency. And in some cases, the captains are unable to contact the higher-ups even if they wish to. So this autonomy of decision-making, the sense that the crew is on their own to a degree. In the moment, they must act together in concert and make the important decisions. That's a a big factor there. A nice thread running through these stories. And of course, the notion of both the sea and space being mysterious and vast and possibly inhospitable, but also truly awe-inspiring and beautiful. That thread is there too. I'd like to end with a really interesting passage from a new-ish book, 2019, from McFarland. It is called Star Trek and the British Age of Sail, the Maritime Influence Throughout the Series and Films by Stefan Rabitsk. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. At any rate, there's a section here that I thought was really interesting that connects directly to what we've been discussing, and I wanted to share that with you. When the author mentions a transatlantic double consciousness in Star Trek, what he's talking about is, on the one hand, Star Trek as wagon train to the stars, and on the other hand, Star Trek as hornblower in space, one being from North America, the other being from Great Britain. Here I'm going to quote from Star Trek and the British Age of Sail. Star Trek's transatlantic double consciousness can be made visible, and indeed audible, by way of a condensed yet paradigmatic example, the opening narration and theme music for Star Trek The Original Series. The final frontier obviously echoes President Kennedy's new frontier rhetoric. The frontier was a political metaphor of change and progress, which quickly became a free-floating ideological signifier that also pertained, but was not limited to, the American space program. Less frequently commented upon is the fact that the mission shared by Star Trek's principal starship captains to boldly go where no man or no one has gone before is a thinly veiled echo of Captain James Cook's journals. Upon having traveled further south than anyone before him, he recorded the following in his journal entry of January 30th, 1774. Quote, I whose ambition leads me not only farther than any other man has been before me, but as far as I think it possible for man to go. End quote. What is more, the opening narration is accompanied by Alexander Courage's iconic theme music. The three opening notes of the Star Trek, the original series fanfare, underscoring the first three words of narration, space, the final frontier, are exactly the same as the ones used in Robert Farnan's suite composed for K-1 
Captain Horatio Hornblower, R.N. That's the film I mentioned before with Gregory Peck. The film adaptation of the first three Hornblower novels. Robert Wise, who directed Star Trek The Motion Picture, recalls in a 2006 DVD extra, A Bold New Enterprise, that the film's soundtrack and Jerry Goldsmith's adaptation of Courage's theme was to evoke, quote, visions of sailing ships, end quote. This example shows how deeply the transatlantic double consciousness permeates the fabric of the Star Trek continuum. And that's the end of that section. I find that fascinating. So, at any rate, I hope this gave you something to think about in terms of what Wagon Train to the Stars and Horatio Hornblower in Space might mean. Thinking about the captains as both the captains of seafaring ships and also the captains and crew as the staff, if you will, moving people through a new frontier and getting to be part of their sort of standalone adventures while also being part of a bigger, grander adventure as well, that movement into an unknown place. And so I hope this was of interest and I hope that you are safe and well, my friends. And I look forward to joining you again very soon with something completely different when we take another look back at genre history. Thank you. Oh, there you go, Amy. I've missed those voices that tone, Amy. I've missed you so much. <laughs> she says she's working flat out there. So, Ames, just step back. Let it all go. Let it all go. Thank you so much, lass. Thank you indeed. So that is Starship Sovas. I hope you've enjoyed it. 661, put to bed. Until next time, I'd just like to say good night from me. Thank you for listening. I don't get out much. I've barely left the ground. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm moving, waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets, I'm pointing them to the moon. But the work is going slowly. It won't get to you anytime soon. Can you? Me. Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio, I want to talk to you This signal's going light speed By the time I get my say I might already be on to you and on my way But you're so far from here and at best I'm moving slow So I'm waiting on your call At home with nowhere to go Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio I want to talk to you I want to talk to you Myself on a radio wave, I might get to you someday. If books were rocket ships, I'd need only the will to fly. I'm still building word by word, and I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there.